Hello, and welcome to Oh No Not, the podcast where we talk about the lesser known, recently deceased. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. There's an echo. (laughs) Ah, I gotta get that fixed. I thought I fixed that. Uh, Hi, Dusty. Hello, Richard. I think we we all know the deal. This is the podcast where we talk about the dead. Recently, the the Grateful Dead. The Grateful Dead. And so, how do you feel about John Mayer? uh, John Mayer. Yeah, he's playing with the dead. Now. Is he really? <laughs> yeah. I had no idea. It's like Dead and Co. or Dead uh, and Friends. This or... is Rick's picks. Yeah. <laughs> hey, deep cut. Uh, cool. Well, yeah. You know, yeah. How are you? Uh, I feel a little under the weather. That's I think right. this is the Constant. first the first time where neither of us are drinking. Well, I guess technically kombucha is alcoholic beverage. Is it? It's got like 0.5 percent. I'm actually, I got. I'm tricking you right now. That's okay. why I gave it to you. <laughs> 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 I was like, <laughs> I got the itch. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, so we'll see how that affects things, our uh, charisma, our back and forth. Mm-hmm. Well, I, this is so this is kombucha. Next week, we should do, like, cocaine, and then beyond that, we should, I think we should have a mushrooms episode. Uh, ayahuasca. Let's do ayahuasca. ayahuasca, yeah, we should so do we're ayahuasca. talking and then throwing up and then just silence uh-huh. while we're both, like, in the fetal position, and that then we'll come a, back and talk about what we saw. It could be a new thing, yeah, just drug. Talk just about what drug. dead people we saw. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> ayahuasca. So my first person uh-huh. is uh, Mark E. Smith, and that is not like Marky Mark. Correct. It's Mark and then the letter E, Smith. Do you know who this person is? I do. Do Are we going to find out what the E stands for? We are going to find All right. out. It's going to be a breaking news. I'm exciting. And unlike exciting. normally, as the avid listeners will know, uh, I tend to go through kind of chronologically their life. I'm going to do it a little differently for this person. I'm not going to kind of go through their life. I'm just going to talk about things they did. It's like an episode of Lost. I've never seen an episode of Lost. <laughs> you don't need to. Okay, cool. Yeah. It was kind of like the Game of Thrones of its day where everyone talked about it and I mm. didn't care. It was a participatory event. Yes. And if you're not participating, it's it's worthless. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I heard it's very frustrating. It is very frustrating, which is part of it. Much like I've heard being in band with Marky Smith. Mm. Um, so he died January 24th at the age of 60. No cause of death was given, but he was known to be in poor health all of last year. Uh, he was the singer and main member of the British band The Fall. And I should say right off the bat, I love The Fall. But much like uh, when the drummer for Can died, I felt awkward talking about it because I have numerous friends who are such bigger fans. Like, I was tempted mm. to ask our friend Ryan to come in mm. to talk about it, but then, because he's like a diehard Fall fan, I just, like, I'm a big fan, but, like, don't really feel like I mm-hmm. can talk uh, eloquently about him or the band. So, um, but The Fall was a great, uh, people like to call him post-punk band. Yep. I always feel like that kind of pigeonholes it. But uh, he, Mark Edward Smith. There you go. Kind of lackluster. <laughs> it's like when you find out that Homer yeah. J. Simpson's middle initial is J. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> he was born in Salford, uh, England on March 5th, 1957. He dropped out of school when he was 16, and when he was working as a shipping clerk, he saw the Sex Pistols in uh, nearby Manchester, uh, which in part inspired him to start a band with some of his friends. So they played in the same scene as like the Smiths, Joy Division, mm-hmm. uh, and in Manchester, but they were kind of a little more high energy th- than those bands. Uh, and the band would continue to play up until his death. Uh, recently, they had actually canceled their first U.S. tour in almost a decade because of his uh, ailing health. So the guy was known for being kind of a narcissist through and through. 
Uh, he was infamously difficult to get along with. And because of this, according to Wikipedia, 66 different band members. Over wow. The 40 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. Really? And it's funny because, you know, if you go on Wikipedia, they'll show that they have those graphs with yeah. like, the color bars to show uh-huh. like they do that oh, wow. with all 66 members. Good Lord. It's kind of impressive. But That's yeah. like a Game of Thrones thing. Yes. yes. Is it? Oh, I don't have know. Have you seen Just Game like, of Thrones? I have seen it all. Oh. Mm-hmm. Just because of the people, just because of the of amount it? of people. But you're up to date on I am up to date. Oh, yeah. I did not know this. It didn't seem like something you'd be into. <laughs> it's kind of this just on. Like, just, we like we kind of watch it, but we don't love it. Catherine's into it too? Yeah. God, that, that surprises me. That, that should surprise everybody. I thought better of you. That's uh, <laughs> so he, he was known. Um, for like getting in fist fights on stage, mm. he would famously FS. not show up to shows until like right before they started. Mm. It's just he was kind of a dick. It's yeah. kind of this like notorious dick, but his music was amazing. Uh, I'll play some of their songs. You're familiar with the music, uh, somewhat. Of yes. Should some- I play a little bit? Please. All right, I'll play my favorite. I would say my favorite song. Oh, I have so many favorite songs. Uh, this one is called "Creep." Here is books. The Lisbon Club And after two months Stands a familiar haunch So it's like kind of snotty uh, mm-hmm. lyrics But like a lot of their music was kind of like a takeoff of Because he, he was a big fan of like Brit pop Like yeah. the Kinks and stuff like that And also American like rock and roll from the 50s and 60s So a lot of their songs are kind of like Almost I don't want to say a parody but like very kind of uh, askewed versions of classic rock stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, starting in 1979 with their first album, the first full length, Live at the Witch Trials, and ending with last year's The New Facts Emerge, the band would record 32. I've seen both the number 32 and 31 I albums. I've only been able to count 31, but I saw on the internet some people were saying 32. One. They have 32 live albums. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> uh, plus numerous EPs. He also uh-huh. released. A handful of stuff uh, on his own solo stuff. Um, he would record with a number of musicians such as Elastica, Mass on Mars, and the Gorillas. Um, in 2002, he made a cameo in the Michael Winterbottom film 24 Hour Party People. Do you ever see that? I've not. Uh, it's about the Manchester music scene in the late 70s, early 80s. So he made a cameo um, as himself? As him- well, actually, I've never actually seen the movie. Yeah. But uh, he is portrayed by actor Sam Riley. Uh, who, interesting, would later go on to play Ian Curtis in the movie uh, of Joy Division, the movie Control. Mm-hmm. So played the same. Interesting. Or two different people in the same yes. scene. Yes, typecast. Yeah, so anyway, um, not I again, I don't feel like I am worthy of talking too much about this guy, <laughs> but if... I think so. If you don't know, I mean, and tons, one thing about The Fall and, and Marky Smith is that he influenced Sonic Youth, he influenced pretty much any indie rock band... Uh, from like the mid '80s on, even if they don't know their pavement. Yeah, yes, the pavement. Uh huh. The pavement. Did you just pull that out of nowhere? It's not. Well, it just sounded no, like, like it. pavement yeah. has uh-huh. has. It sounded like it. Very famously. Oh, I did. Uh, I did that pull it out. I've never read that. I just just going from the music. Well, there you go. Look at it. Yes. Look at me. I'm like a like an, yeah, like an encyclopedia. <laughs> um. So yeah, with if you don't know who Marky Smith is and you like the rock and roll music. Of the past three decades, mm. go educate yourself. Yeah, you stupid jerk. Yes. Uh, why are you so dumb? Why are you a dumb dumb? Uh, spoken like probably Marky e. Smith would say, <laughs> "Don't be a dumb dumb." Uh, oh no, not Mark E. Smith.
Awesome. Uh, my first person is a lady by the name of Naomi Parker Fraley. Fraley was her marriage name, but I'm just going to call her Naomi Parker from now on. Okay. Uh, because just... You just call her gnomes. It could call her gnomes. <laughs> uh, so she died. So gnomes died uh, January 20th at the age of 96. There was no cause of death listed. Um, and Parker, she's known as the inspiration for the famous, uh, famously iconic Rosie the Riveter poster. Do you know the poster I of am talking about? Everyone, every, it, it is, as a friend of ours, our friend Julia pointed out, I think this past Halloween, it is a go-to, uh, oh shit, I need a Halloween costume. That's correct. Yeah. You just <laughs> it's put like on, like, you could like, be that, you know, if you happen to be scruffy and have a beard, you could be mm-hmm. Che Guevara, yep. you know, any, any leftist leaning person. It could be Frida with just yeah. like the right, just, just draw yeah. like, like yeah, a yeah. little. Uh, <laughs> so, all right. So the the iconic poster, which everyone knows, uh, is a woman flexing with a red polka dot scarf uh, on a, wrapped around her head and with the words, we can do it, coming out of a quote above above her and uh, above her, I guess. That's all I have to say in that sentence. Um, <laughs> I would say after the Uncle Sam We Want You yeah. poster. I think it's the most iconic piece of war or US war propaganda. I think so. Yeah, no. And we'll get into a lot about the history of that with this particular you, you have three oh, facts. No, not. Just three facts. <laughs> um so she's the person who inspired that. But that was not always like that let's get into it. Because the story is super muddled and weird. And um and so she was born, so Naomi Parker was born nineteen twenty one in Tulsa. She was a third of eight kids her father was a mining engineer. Her mother was a homemaker. They moved kind of wherever their dad's uh, job took them, which went from New York to Missouri to Texas to Washington to Utah, and finally to the island of Alameda um, here in the Bay Area. Wait, how'd you pronounce that? Alameda? What do you say? Alameda? Alameda. Al- Alameda. He said what? Alameda. Did I? Whatever. Al- Alameda, right? Uh- Alameda. <laughs> um, and they were there when Pearl Harbor was attacked. And so she quickly went to work with her sister, Ada, at a machine shop at the Naval Air Station that was on uh, Alameda. <laughs> Alameda. Alameda. Uh, and uh, there she dri- she would drill and patch airplane wings, and they operated these uh, rivet machines. Uh, and in 1942, her photo was taken while she was working at this vertical shaper, and the photo made its way around the country, including uh, reprinted an issue of the Pittsburgh Press. Now, let's put a pin in that story for just a second. Just remember that. Pittsburgh Press. One second. One second. (laughs) Um, So uh, Parker, she finished her war effort. She moved to Palm Springs where she worked as a waitress at a place called the Dollhouse. Uh, She was married three times, had a family. All right. So that is kind of- Married three times. She had one family or three families? You know, it was real. Like getting her biographical (laughs) details about her was very difficult. Did she have three families at one? Like did the families know about each other? I don't know. I'm not. Yeah. It's really difficult. That would be a whole, that would be a better story, but that'd be a different story. Gotcha. Um, So back to that photo that was reprinted in the Pittsburgh press. In 1943, it was used as the inspiration for a series of posters- uh, by the artist Howard Miller to promote uh, worker morale kind of throughout the country. Uh, and that what that is the iconic poster. But it was it's also worth keeping in mind that like at the time that wasn't like Rosie the Riveter. That poster was just a poster. Rosie the Riveter predates that poster in terms of like its impact. So in 1940, it was just like during the war effort, this idea of Rosie the Riveter kept yeah, we on like, all have to pitch in. Right, we all have to pitch in. Nobody has an excuse. There was a song in 1942 called Rosie the Riveter. There was a movie in 44 called Rosie the Riveter. 
Um, all to promote like the woman-driven dri- war effort at home. Uh, there was a Wendy the Welder was sort of part of the conversation at some point. Uh, Norman Rockwell in the 43 uh, Saturday Evening Post made a Rosie. So it was just like the idea of Rosie the Riveter. And this like this poster was just kind of like hanging around. It wasn't really associated with it at all. And then kind of just like faded into obscurity and was gone. While the legend of Rosie kind of continues at the same time. So the poster was hidden away until about the 80s. From like 1940 to the 80s, the poster is just completely it, it, gone. It was like one of umpteen propaganda posters. Yeah, and not even considered a Rosie the Riveter poster. It was just a propaganda poster. So, so you're saying Rosie the Riveter, the concept of Rosie the Riveter, was completely separate than this poster. Until the 1980s. Ah. And in the 1980s... The poster was rediscovered. It became associated with Rosie the Riveter, like retroactively, in a weird way. Um, and then it became uh, there's like a research paper they call it like a modern day myth, where like the fact that these two things merged in the 80s, everyone thought that oh they've been merged forever, but really it was only in the 80s. So like, so as the legend grew, people started to like look at the poster, and because it became this huge thing, like well where's the inspiration for this poster? A woman by the name of Geraldine Hoff. Uh, she was later Geraldine Doyle, uh, but Geraldine Hoff, she worked at a at a plant in Ann Arbor during the war effort. And in 1984, when this poster was on the rise, she came across a photo of a young worker that was the inspiration for the poster. Um, the photo that was of uh, Parker taken in Alameda. Gotcha. And it was in a local paper. She thought it looked like herself, and she knew that her photo had been taken at a plant plant shop and so she's like oh i'm pretty sure i'm this person who is the inspiration for this like now popular uh poster give me money well I, she didn't she sought it out a historian ah. uh i don't know that she got any money but basically like the historian like all right whatever sure yeah you're rosie <laughs> and uh that was it and so this woman geraldine hoff was like thought to be rosie the riveter uh she for from the 80s until 2010 when she died she must have been on countless local uh, i mean local she, parade yeah, floats of course. all across america of course here's the inspiration yeah, for rosie, here is rosie um she died in 2010 in 2011 uh parker was uh Nor- naomi parker gnomes 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 parker she was at a rosie the river reunion at the historical park up in richmond mm-hmm. and she's looking through like the things and she saw the famous photo uh, of her at the lathe, and she's like, oh, that's me. But then on the bottom it said that it was this Geraldine Hoff person who had been, I guess, taking yeah. credit. But, like, you know, kind of a low-simmering credit. Innocently. Innocently, yeah. but also kind of like it wasn't big news. And yeah. she didn't – and uh, Naomi didn't know that it was really – you know, you kind of lose yeah. track of stuff. And so she's like, no, that's – I think that's me. And so she started going to a few places – uh, and whatever. At the same time, <laughs> it's a weird story. At the same time, Seton Hall professor James J. Kimball got interested in the history of Rosie and then um, the history of the photo and tra- traced it down, uh, traced the original photo and found it credited to this Naomi Parker, who he didn't know at the time. But he also was doing some research and the date and timing didn't really match Geraldine Hoff's story. And so he wanted to track down this Naomi Parker. Eventually, uh, they met up. He... He's like, hey, are you this person that's in the photo? They're like, yeah, we've been trying to tell these people. In 2015, yeah. he goes there. And they're like, yeah, we've been trying to tell people for years and no one believes us. And he's like, all right, well, let me see what I can do. And so he brought all this evidence to historians. I was like, no, this is the person that really should be credited as Rosie the Riveter. Um, and eventually, with enough, I don't know, investigations and whatever, he finally convinced whatever historian is out there, which 
I guess at that point, it would probably be just Wikipedia. Yeah. And, <laughs> um, and then so uh, uh, Naomi became the actual representation of what Rosie the Riveter was for, inspired. For two years. For, yeah, about three years. Um, Wait, did she work at the Rosie the Riveter Museum? Was she one of the Rosies you could I, like, go talk to? I mean, be she like, probably was there, yeah. Let me tell yeah. you about my children. Yeah, if anyone is in the area. Yes, I was going to plug this at yeah. the end. Yes, if you live in... California or any of the surrounding states and you happen to be coming through the Bay Area, do yourself a favor and go to the Rosie the Riveter Museum. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's in Richmond. It's down by the waterfront. It's awesome. And down in the basement, they keep some Rosies. (laughs) They froze some Rosies. There's just like 90-year-old women that have like a little like board that they have up that shows their history and you could go talk to them and they're all like four foot five and just adorable (laughs) i will say i think it's only like a month once a month thing they're not there i think so yeah well we were we lucked upon them oh okay but i would so look on their schedule like do it soon because there's not going to be many of them left for much longer that's true so anyway there's that's the story of naomi parker and we don't really know much about her life. <laughs> so, uh, oh no, not Naomi Parker. Did she stay local the whole time, as far as you can tell? Uh, she was in Palm Springs at least for some of it. I assume I, every yeah, old they were kind of down in there. California ends up in Palm Springs. That's all I got about her. All right, okay, well, that's good. That was long. I told you that was, you it was, a, that be was long. long. That yeah. was good. My next person, also a very old lady. Uh, this I have to do our sounder because this is in an oldest. Only the good die So, uh, Connie Sawyer died on January 21st at the age of 105, also no cause of death given. We've got three in a row. No, 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 no cause, cause, cause. Uh, She was known as the oldest working actress at 105. She was born on November 27th, 1912 in Pueblo, Colorado to Jewish immigrants from Romania. Uh, When she was seven, her family moved to beautiful Oakland, California. Ah, loco. Uh, uh, her mother always wanted to be an actress, so she encouraged her daughter to perform and started doing local plays as a, as a, at eight years old. Uh, as a teenager, she began performing in theaters in San Francisco, and then when she was 19, she moved to New York City to get her career started. Uh, though her first television, so she was mostly a theater actress until, uh, the 1950s, so when she was close to 40, she started appearing, uh... On television, her first appearances were on the Milton Berle and Jackie Gleason TV shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, her first movie appearance was in the Frank Sinatra uh, slash Frank Capra film called A Hole in the Head. I've never seen Ah, uh, the double Franks. Uh, in 19, uh, 1959, she got this part because it was actually a film version of a stage play that she had a part in. Okay. Though the rest of her career was mostly doing bit parts. Uh, some of the other movies she was in over the years was the original True Git, uh, oh God with George Burns. She was on uh, When Harry Met Sally, Bonfire of the Vanities. She was, uh, I believe, the old lady that steals Jim Carrey's wallet in Dumb and Dumber. Uh, <laughs> she also was in, she was the old lady in Pineapple Express. Uh, but the majority of her work was done on television. Uh, some shows she appeared in, you might be familiar with. Uh, Mary Tyler Moore Show, Laverne and Shirley, Welcome Back, Cotter, Dynasty, Murder, She Wrote, Home Improvement, Seinfeld, Will and Grace, ER, How I Met Your Mother, and Two Broke Girls, just to name a few. One of her last roles was on the show New Girl, playing, quote-unquote, the oldest woman in the world, Wow, fittingly. Last year, she self-published her autobiography that was wonderfully titled 
I never wanted to be a star, and I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> That's fun. Um, she claimed that uh, she, in an interview last year, people ask, like, basically, what they ask anyone over 100, why are you still alive? They're like... <laughs> That's uh, what they ask them? <laughs> yeah. Hey, what yeah. are you doing still alive? Yeah. Well, how, where do you get off being alive? <laughs> uh, she said, you know, she just loves to stay active. Okay. She, she says she swam most of her life, and whenever she gets a chance to go out and socialize, she does it. Whenever she's invited to something, she'll go. Just got to stay active. Um, I wish I I was dead. One fact about this story that I wanted to tell you about, Rick, is for the last 12 years of my life- The other stuff you didn't want to tell me? This. This this is for you. I'm going to pitch something to you. Ready? Yeah. Uh, The last 12 years of her life, she lived at the Motion Picture and Television Funds Residential Complex for the Entertainment Industry Retirees in L.A. Interesting. So, apparently- it's in LA. All right. I'm pitching to you. You should just go there and see who is there and see how many of them remember anything and can be interviewed. That is pretty great. There's yeah. probably just like all these bit part or uh-huh. a lot of Milton Burl dong stories. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so yes, I, I think you should go find this place and interview whoever you can. Now, should I dress up and do like an investigative yes, thing? Yes. Okay. You should go undercover. Yeah. Like and, an and, and do uh, do a. Just normal, just sting- look the normal and be like, no, I'm yeah. I'm 83 years old. And they'll be like, oh, yeah, come on yeah. in. You, look, just you look all right. Oh, no, not Connie Sawyer. All right. Oh, you got like five minutes. Uh, so <laughs> uh, the last person we'll be doing today is another local lady. Uh, the na- Her name is Ursula K. Le Guin. And the same way that you were talking about Marky Smith, I kind of feel about her because mm-hmm. like... I've read very few things I, by when her. When you asked me if I wanted to cover this person, I'm like, she's important, but she's I've, very important. I've heard the name. I yeah. have, I've like heard of one of her books. I've like read a few things. I've read a few things by her, oh, okay. like nonfiction stuff. <laughs> like well, I've never read you, you much. Are, you're more qualified than I. Um, so, I don't read books, right. so you are already more. That, that I am more qualified in anything. Uh, she died at the age of 88. Uh, she had poor health for several months, but that was it. Uh, she was born in 1929 in Berkeley. As Ursula Krober, Kroeber, Kroeber, I'm not really sure. It's like that. Uh, her dad was an anthropologist. Her mom was a writer. She had three older brothers, uh, and they were exposed to their parents' dynamic group of friends, including Mr. Robert Oppenheimer. So that kind of group. Now you have mine. Now you're dead. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Um, she was drawn to literature at a young age, and she wrote her first fantasy story when she was nine, and she published uh, a story in the magazine Astounding Science Fiction when she turned 11. So young, getting her young start. Sci-fi. Pro- prodigy. Prodigy. She attended Berkeley High. Uh, she went to Radcliffe and Columbia Colleges, and then she got a Fulbright uh, grant and studied in France for a year in 53. That's where she met her future husband, Charles Le Guin, which is where she got her last name. Um they came back. She continued her PhD at Emory, started having kids. 1958, uh, they moved to Portland, and that's where they lived. I pretty That's where they were living. I think they just kind of stayed up there the whole, their whole lives. Mm-hmm. Um, between 1951 and 50, and 61, she wrote five novels, all of which were rejected from publishers. Because she's a woman. Because <laughs> they felt they were inaccessible. But like, so 10 years, five novels, and rejected. And that's that's how it is. That's what the life is. You just get rejected. Over and over and over. <laughs> and then at some point, maybe somebody thinks that this is good enough to do something with. And then that's how it creates. It'll happen. It'll so happen, she, buddy. Don't so just keep at it. Man. In the 1960s, uh, she returned to like her science fiction writing as a way to express her interests. 
uh, and she began to see some success. Uh, she was regularly published in anthologies and literary magazines. In 1961, the short story "The Word The Word of Unbinding." which was about a wizard that was trapped on an island uh, and other things that I read up, but I don't want to spoil anything. Um, she published that, and it was on an, in an island in this place called Earthsea that became uh, kind of this fictional realm that she worked in during like m- throughout a lot of her writing. Not all of it, but a lot of it. She it published like her Middle Earth. Kind of, yeah. She published uh, six books and seven more short stories that were all set in this like vast a uh, group of islands, kind of like the Philippines. Uh, and yeah, that's all I know about that. <laughs> In 1969, uh, she wrote a book called The Left Hand of Darkness, which wasn't involved in the Earthsea stuff, but that is really what propelled her to this like huge stage. She won the Hugo Award, the Nebula Award, which I guess is another big deal, like the Hugo Award. Sure. Um, it was reprinted more than 30 times. Uh, it's just known as like one of the great sci-fi novels of all time. Uh, and then she uh, she wrote a book called The Dispossessed, which took place in the same kind of – it was like thematically the same. She said it was different worlds, but they're all kind of like alternate history, alternate future type of human civilization type stuff. And that was it. So she kept on writing. Uh, she <laughs> she basically just wrote – like she was just a person who just would, would write a bunch and she got a bunch of awards and she um, – Very uh, beloved. She's very beloved. Uh, when she was asked why she works in sci-fi, she says, uh, she said, quote, anything at all can be said to happen there without fear of contradiction from a native. The future is a safe, sterile laboratory for trying out ideas. Um, a majority of her characters throughout her career were people of color, a choice that she made to reflect that the majority of human beings are non-white. She's like, it just kind of makes sense. Interesting. Um, and then gender, whenever she like dealt with gender in her books, it was very like considered and deliberate. She often used uh, the pronoun they, uh, not often, but when it was needed, and uh, she would often get into arguments with her editors about using that, and because back then it was like it was just more, it was just difficult, I guess, to do that. If you're a main character, you should be a guy, right? And she was also like very leftish in her writing. Uh, she called the dispossessed an anarchist utopian novel, uh, and while she didn't consider herself an anarchist because she, uh, at least be- just because she wasn't living it, she said she kind of like felt that way, but she wasn't actually living like an anarchist. Uh, she did say that anarchism is a, quote, necessary ideal, at the very least an ideal, without which we couldn't go on. Uh, won tons of, like I said, tons of awards. Her work was adapted over and over, highly influential. Uh, at Mills College in 1983, she gave a commencement address titled A Left-Handed Commencement Address. <laughs> um, and it is, I think it was called, is this magazine American Rhetoric or something? Some magazine that deals with speeches. Uh, but they named it number 82 of the top 100 speeches of the 20th century. Uh, and I actually read it. It was It's great. It's worth <laughs> seeing. It's not like super, super long. Um, so look it up. But I'll just leave with a quote is it, from... Is it better than that Steve Jobs speech? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Uh, so look it up, but her, but just a quote from the speech, uh, she's talking to the graduates about success, and this is just one of the paragraphs. It says, success is somebody else's failure. Success is the American dream we can keep dreaming because most people in most places, including 30 million of ourselves, live wide awake in the terrible reality of poverty. No, I do not wish you success. I don't even want to talk about it. I want to talk about your failure. So that was sort of a good glimpse into her. Uh, and that's it. So Olno, not... Ursula K. Le Guin. Awesome. I um, <clears throat> I heard on NPR someone was, they showed, or they were playing clips from her over the years, and some uh, literary 
reviewer was talking about how they saw her speak a couple years ago at some book uh, conference or book forum, and mm-hmm. she just started going off about ebooks and Amazon, yeah, and how awful it is, and how now. Uh, you know, there are so few artists writing and now everyone's just writing for a book. Yeah. And how and just true. everyone in the audience, like this was that like is, an industry right. thing and she was asked to speak at it and people were just like, shut up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, all of her writing and all of her like ideas are very much uh, based yeah. in an anti-capitalist mindset, I would say. Yes. Check them out. You should read more of her stuff. I know, I know. I really should. <laughs> so with that, uh, if you have any people, places or things you would like who are that died. Hey, hey, hey. Um... <laughs> That you think are important. Because I got to yes. say, it's funny, like, Marky e. Smith and the last person... Ursula K. Le Guin. Yeah, Ursula, if you were to go by my social feeds, mm-hmm. were two of the most important people in the world. Oh, totally, <laughs> like, yeah. They yeah. were just inundated mm-hmm. uh, with those two. But, you know, it's... Uh, so if there's someone that is important to you that yes. you think is not properly represented in the world... And has at least, like, a Wikipedia page, maybe, like... It's just something that we could research. I don't think Rod Dibble had a... No, but that was, he was fun. That's true. <laughs> yeah. Send it to us at ononotpodcast at gmail.com or text Rick at... <laughs> 310-467-0608. That's 310-467-0608. Or follow us on Twitter at... ononotrip. Oh, no, no trip. The Twitter account. The movie. The movie. <laughs> Colon, uh, the, the movie. TV show. Uh, until next week. I hope I don't see you in the abyss.